If you would like to turn to Isaiah 9 in your Bibles, as we're in the Christmas season, um, a fair amount of the time I'll, I'll do kind of an Advent series. Um, I argue with myself every year because I hate breaking out of the series that I'm in. I'm, I've kind of got my head in a certain direction, and then all of a sudden I'm going to go in a different direction for a few weeks. And then because of the nature of, of seasonal types of things, it comes down to topics, and I have a hard time with topical sermons because I never know when I'm done. There's so much that you can say uh, the, the church where I interned while I was in seminary, the first Sunday that we were there just to visit, and I was going to talk to the, the pastor, Neil, after church, um, he, he, they used overheads. Remember, some of you remember overheads. So they used overheads, and uh, he, had, he had 30 points for a sermon. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting because I'm just starting to study preaching how you're going to get 30 points covered in a 35 or 40-minute sermon. And the answer is you don't. You cover about 11, and then you say, well, I guess we'll have to finish next week. It's like, uh. So topical's tough. Topical, you never know when you're done. So be praying for me. Um, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is the light of the world. Let me give you the, the setting here. Isaiah is writing about 750 years before Christ. Actually, about 650 years before Christ because it goes back backwards. But uh, he's, he's writing about 750 B.C. Most of his ministry deals with Israel as an idolatrous nation. In the very first chapter, the Lord says, An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know me. Israel does not perceive me. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have become estranged from him. Now what we need to understand here is that when God called Abram out of Ur to, to go to Haran and then eventually into Canaan, Abram was in a family of idol worshipers. Joshua 24.2 Says Joshua, says, said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, that's the, the uh, Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abram was raised in an idol worshiping home. He was not raised in a Christian home, he was not raised in a Jewish home, he was not raised with a knowledge of the one true God. God called him out of that. And chose him. A generation or two later, Abraham's uh, grandson Jacob had gone to Padam Aram after the conflict with his brother Esau. He'd married Rachel and Leah. Had had uh, ten sons. The eleventh, eleven sons. The the tenth, uh, the twelfth would be born rather on the on the way back. His right, his wife Rachel stole her father Laban's family idols. Genesis 31.19 says, 
Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. What's key there is that Jacob married within the clan. He married within the family. So even Abram's distant relatives were continuing to be idol worshipers. After being delivered from slavery in Egypt, given the law in the wilderness, Israel promises to be faithful to Yahweh. Exodus 19 The Lord says to them, so now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words he says to Moses, that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words, which Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered and said, all that Yahweh has said, we will do. The Old Testament often presents God as the the husband and Israel as the wife. This is the marriage ceremony, and at the altar, Israel says, I do. Intending the whole time to be adulterous. They, they, They meant it in that moment. But you can't even say that they meant it for that generation, because that generation then quickly lapses into idolatry. And that becomes the dominating sin of the the nation Israel and of the Jewish people. At the very end of the kingdom period, right before they are captured by the Assyrians, 100 or 150 years after Isaiah now, God says in Jeremiah, has a nation ever changed its gods though they were not gods? Do you know of any pagan nations that woke up one day and said, we're not going to worship those gods anymore? Uh, those of us who were in, in public school and some, perhaps some who were in homeschool learned, learned about the Roman, uh, Roman deities, the Greek gods. We learned about the Norse gods, Thor and Loki and, and the others. Did, did the Norsemen ever wake up one morning and say, you know something, forget all those guys, let's go Roman? No, it's absurd. It's definitional of who you are. But Israel... He says, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. My, my people have abandoned their gods. Even the, even the pagan nations don't do that, but my people have done that. Israel continually committed spiritual adultery. Yahweh gave them no reason to do that. He promises at the end of Deuteronomy to the second generation, those who will go into the land, if you will obey me, I will bless you. I will bless you in every important way that you can be blessed. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And the curses, by the way, run much longer than the blessings. Because the blessings are for prosperity and health and safety. And that becomes just universal. But he gets very specific with the curses. They were so in love with the world that they continually forsook their God. Is that a word, forsook? It is now. Some were faithful. Some were faithful. But why were they faithful? It wasn't because of their own good character. Paul writes in Romans 11, and it applies to all time. In this way, then, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice has also come to be. Why was there a faithful remnant, even with Abraham and even with others? It's because God's gracious choice kept them faithful. That's true for you and me. If we're faithful, it's not because we're better people. It's not because we're smarter. It's because God has been gracious to us. Well, that brings us 
all the way up to the end of Isaiah 8, where early in the book of Isaiah, God speaks about the eternal issues facing Israel. They will pass through the land, verses, this is verses 21 and 22. They will pass through the land, my people will pass through the land, hard-pressed and hungry. And it will be that when they are hungry, they will be angry. And they will curse their king and their God. That's interesting. They're going to be hard-pressed and hungry because of their sin. And rather than repenting when the judgment of God comes upon them, the correction of God, instead they became, become angry at the king. Most of the kings of Israel deserved that anger. But Yahweh didn't. They will be angry and curse their king and their God as they face upward, he says. And then they will look to the earth. And behold, de- distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be banished into thick darkness. That's a picture of eternal judgment. The gloom of anguish is a phrase that kind of means the depression that comes from looking at your your present dark circumstances. It means they're thinking. It means they're actually experiencing the judgment of God. And they're not finding any, any hope. It reminds me of the opening words of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath, even as the rest. What we're seeing there, that applies to the Ephesians. It applies mainly to Gentiles. So mankind falls in Adam. They experience spiritual darkness. God calls Abram to follow him in light. He calls Isaac and he calls Jacob and, and the sons of Jacob and he grants them light and he grants them his word. He doesn't invent this deep gloom of of darkness and thick darkness for the Jews. That's simply what the Gentiles already have. You're going to act like the world. I'm going to judge you like the world. And that ends Isaiah 8. But praise God, there's an Isaiah 9. But, he says in Isaiah 9.1, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah is looking forward 700 years to the time of Christ, as we look back 2,000 years to the time of Christ. And he, he describes Galilee. Even then it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles because it was dominated by Gentiles. When he talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, if you, you find perhaps your Bible has maps of where the tribes had their lands, Zebulun and Naphtali occupied the, the area of Galilee. 
He talks about the Way of the Sea, which is a reference to the coastal road that ran next to the Mediterranean and ran through Gentile cities. And he talks about the other side of Jordan or beyond Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, which was Gentile. So what's going to happen when God brings light? Jews and Gentiles both experience hope. There's an end of judgment for both. A great light is coming, he says in in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. The words darkness and light here are, are symbolic. They're symbols. He doesn't mean that because of the sins of the people, physical darkness will fall on them. It's spiritual darkness. He doesn't mean that because of the grace of God, the sun will come out and it won't be physical night anymore. He means that there's going to be spiritual light. Symbols are very important anytime, especially in scripture. Symbols always point to something greater. They never point to something less. They always point to something more. When Linda and I got married, we just had basic basic wedding rings, just simple, cheap wedding rings. For our 10th anniversary, we got nice rings. She still has hers. Um, mine was kind of a chunky gold ring, and it scratched my guitar, so I didn't wear it. And, and one day, it happened to go missing. And we've not found it. We've not found it. Um, when Linda's dad moved in with us last year for a few weeks, we, we moved upstairs, and we emptied our bedroom to make room for him. It's, it was simply not there. Well, several years ago... I wanted a wedding ring. Mine had gone missing. And so we went to a jeweler here in town, and I got about the cheapest wedding ring I could get. I think it was about 70 or 80 bucks. Uh, it's 10-karat gold. I think that 10-karat gold, they take, a, they take a brass ring, and they take a piece of gold, they wave it over it a couple times, and <laughs> I, the, there's just no discernible gold to it. But this cheap, inexpensive symbol points to 41 years of depth and life, and joy, and tears, and all of the rest. So it's just a symbol, but what it points to is invaluable. The darkness and the light point to something far more meaningful and far greater. That darkness is not just physical darkness, it's the judgment of God on sin and sinners. And it brings nothing but gloom and depression. The light... The great light that is going to burst forth is going to bring unimaginable joy to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. Also doesn't mean that the Jew gets this and the Gentile gets this also means in equal measure. The same measure comes to Jews and Gentiles both, and the result is unimaginable joy. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation, you shall make great their gladness, they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The Lord uses two pictures of of joy. He uses uh, the, the picture of an abundant harvest, And he uses the picture of victory over enemies. 
forget all of the economic theories you've ever heard about society used to be agricultural and then the industrial revolution happened and then the, techno the information revolution. Just forget all of that. Every society is an agricultural society. We have to eat. And machines don't make food. Computers don't make food. They make it more efficient. The, ind the industry that is out there was able to create machines so that farmers today can, day can do infinitely beyond what their great-grandparents could do. The computers are making it possible to, to simply point it in the right direction, take your hands off the wheel, and the GPS drives it. I don't think it'll be too much longer before a farmer will be able to sit in his living room with a pad and simply direct it by remote control. And there simply won't be a passenger space within, within a combine. That's not that far away. It's a lot safer than driving 70 miles an hour down the freeway with your hands off the wheel. So what happens when there's an abundant harvest? Everybody should rejoice. There's food. We get to eat. Everybody should be celebrating that. Everybody should be dancing at that. Of course, the problem with an abundant harvest this year is that next year might be terrible. So what does this symbol point to? It, it points to the receiving of an eternal blessing from God, one that is not seasonal, but eternal. It never changes. Once you've received that, that blessing, that, that living bread and water that is Jesus Christ and the gospel will never run out. Those who truly believe in Jesus never experience spiritual hunger and thirst ever again. Their souls never feel, never feel the longing of a God to worship. We come to know our God. We come to know our Creator and our Savior, and we're content in that, and we find rest in that in all of the other turmoil of life. The second picture of rejoicing is the joy that comes from victory over enemies. The, the people of Israel were a, a people of warfare. From the day they crossed the Jordan, they began fighting. And in their history, they had a few years here and there where there was relative peace from major enemies. But even in the time of the judges, when you would have 20 or 30 or 40 years when there was peace, I don't think that that peace means that there were no enemies. I just think that it means that there were no major enemies, no major threats. There's always the risk of bandits. There's always the risk of trouble. And so when you've been attacked and you've gone to war and a year or five years or ten years later, your, your nation, your people have been victorious, the celebration that comes from that is not the celebration of your team winning. It's the celebration of your home being safe and your family being safe. That's the celebration. But it's a symbol. What does it represent? It represent God's, represents God's victory over sin and death. The destruction of the spirit and of the soul. It speaks of what John, uh, Pastor John Owen, the Puritan pastor, said was the death of death in the death of Christ. The enemy is put down and destroyed. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? It's swallowed up in Christ. It's gone. Now he tells us how these blessings come. And the answer is that God is the victor. 
God doesn't say, follow this plan. Here's the weapons of warfare. Follow the plan. Follow my marching orders. I'll stand up on the hill and direct you, and you go do the fighting. He says in verse 4, for you, Yahweh, will shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. You will shatter the rod of their taskmaster as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be burnt for burning fuel for the fire. God is the one who destroys the enemy. God is the one who, in verse 5, in, in burning the boots and burning the cloaks, he destroys the enemy's ability to make war. He doesn't just defeat them. He destroys the possibility. So Yahweh is the victor, not his people. You see, mankind are not victims. We're criminals. The turmoil that we experience, we experience because of God's judgment against sin and because of the natural consequences of our own sin nature. We cannot earn salvation for many reasons. One of those reasons is that it's too late. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. Not all will, but all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. Not all will fall short. All have That's already done. So that horse has left the barn, the train has left the station, the cookies have been baked. It's over. It's over. If there's going to be forgiveness, if there's going to be light, if there's going to be reconciliation, if there's going to be hope, it's going to have to be God who does it. And that's what he does. God goes to war for us. God goes to battle for us. You shall shatter the yoke of their burden. How did he do this? He did it through the Savior. Verses 6 and 7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulder. That child, that son, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's God incarnate. The God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So, God gets personally involved in the redemption of his people. He doesn't stand in heaven shouting and pointing. No, go over there. There. No, keep going. Keep going. No, too far. Come back. There. He actually enters in to our world. He entered into our life. And this child, this son, is the son of God. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He sent his Son to take on human flesh in the Incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Isaiah tells us the character and the nature of this child. <clears throat> Jesus is the wonderful counselor. There's no greater wisdom on earth than the, than the word of God. But Jesus is the living word. And the word of God is representational of who Jesus is, where the word of God is limited, 1,289 chapters, 66 books. Jesus is infinite. He is wisdom personified. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He himself is truth. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says in John 14. 
Jesus is the mighty God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son. He possesses infinite, eternal, unhindered authority and power. We were going over this at the the jail on Thursday night. And uh, one of the men who sat down, the first thing he said was, could you get me a Quran? And I said, not my department. And so when we went through this, I really hammered the deity of Christ. And his eyes are crossed and his, his forehead's furrowed, but he's listening. He's listening. Jesus, as the mighty God, came in a remarkably gentle and peaceful way during his earthly ministry. A bruised reed he didn't break, smoking flax he didn't quench. But when he returns, he returns as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He returns to, in a sense, make war against the forces of Satan and wickedness. But in another sense, there's no war at all because he simply comes and Revelation says he destroys them with the word of his mouth. There's no effort. There's no fighting. There's no straining. There's no labor. We don't know because... We've not been told the secret things belong to God, the things revealed belong to us. We don't know the secret things. But in my imagination, I think that maybe Jesus will simply arrive on the horse with the armies of heaven and simply say, enough. And it's over. Jesus is the everlasting Father. This is not a denial of the Trinity. It's not a confusion of the Father and the Son as persons It's better understood as father of eternity. That's the the sense of it. And Jesus is the source of life. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, Jesus says, even so the son also gives the life to whom he wishes. To whom he wishes. He's in control. He says later on in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. John's gospel, as I was studying this week, is so full of this truth that the, the original slide, I had probably 20 verses in John. And it makes perfect sense. Because John opens up with the, those words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John continues that kind of almost a singular theme that Jesus is life and he is the source of life all the way through. What Jesus gives, he gives for eternity. When he gives eternal life, it remains eternal. It can't be lost, it can't be stolen, and it can't be taken away. And then Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Again, he was a peaceful man. He came in peace. He came in gentleness. He lived in peace. He acted peacefully. He experienced the peace of God, even in his suffering. There's those moments in the garden when he's praying and he's in anguish, but he's in peace because of the certainty of the Father. But beyond all of that, Jesus rules his people now in peace and by peace. Peace. He is not a screaming drill sergeant who abuses his recruits to create some kind of a mindless obedience. The, the other night on, uh, on YouTube, a video came up 
and it was women going into the Air Force and arriving at basic training and what they experience in, in the first few hours of basic training. And our, if you don't know, our daughter's in the Air Force, and I, I was sitting there getting weepy at the abuse she suffered. It's brutal. And the Air Force is the easy one. It was hard. But that's not Jesus. That's not the way that he treats us. He's the good shepherd. He tenderly cares for us, and he leads us by his spirit and word into holiness and Christ-likeness. As we, we bring this home, the old hymn, we sang it last week, says the whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. We were all born into the thick darkness of the judgment of God. The only way to be saved from that judgment is through Jesus Christ. But with him, there's absolute hope. Sinners are commanded to repent of their sin and believe the gospel. The Spirit of God transforms our lives so that we are no longer dominated by sin, but increasingly grow into the image of Jesus himself. As Christians, we can become so used to that that it just becomes assumed. It just becomes accepted. We stop, we stop thinking about it with any wonder. And we shouldn't. Because we need a Savior every day. If you remember the words from Come Thou Fount, uh, there's a line in there, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's all of us, just as it was Israel. The reason we don't is that he keeps us, not because we're great, not because we're smart or wise, but because he keeps us. And so when we sing that, when we make that confession of weakness and frailty, what we're really doing is... is putting an end to our own pride and self-sufficiency. We're glorifying God for every positive step in our lives. We refuse to take credit for the good that we do. And we're reminded to stay at the foot of the cross. Let's pray, and then Pastor Justin's going to lead us in the Lord's table. <coughs> Lord, we give you thanks for your graciousness to us and your kindness to us. We give you thanks that into the midst of the darkness of our lives, the darkness of sin and hopelessness and the darkness of judgment came the light of Christ. We did not have eyes to see that light. You opened our eyes. We didn't have ears to hear your truth. You opened our ears. We were unable to believe it. You gave us faith. And because of that, we can lift up those we know who know, don't know you, who are resistant and rebellious. We can look to you as their God and ask you to have mercy on them as you had mercy on us. To spare them from your judgment as you have spared us. And to grant us humility before you. We thank you for Jesus, the great light of the world. And in his name I pray, amen.